Welcome to Voices from the Vernacular Music Center. I'm Roger Landis. And I'm Chris Smith. And this is a podcast from the Vernacular Music Center at Texas Tech University. The Vernacular Music Center is a center for teaching, research, and advocacy in the world's vernacular musics and dance. That is, musics and dance which are learned, taught, and passed on by ear and in the memory. In this second series, produced with funding from the Talkington College of Visual and Performing Arts, we talk about how the VMC engages with music and dance from around the world, and about the connections and the history and the community meaning of these art forms. We hear from players, scholars, dancers, builders, and listeners about times and places and people, and together we discover and celebrate the webs of human meaning which connect all of them. Thanks for joining us. This week, we're going to return to a theme we've touched on several times in previous episodes, the ways that the vernacular might be a component, even a hidden component, of what's more conventionally understood as classical or cultivated music. We're sometimes led to believe that the two are completely separate from one another, but especially in certain historical periods, there's much more interaction. Yeah, and and I think we should all remember that every music performance tradition employs elements of vernacular learning, of demonstration, imitation, critique. Those are a very central part of every voice or instrument performance lesson, for example, demonstration, imitation, critique. Even if in the world of Western classical music, performance in a formal sense, is presumed to happen from scores and parts. It's always there. The vernacular is always present, even if it's hidden. And there have been cultivated music composers, even the ultra-modernism of the 20th century, for whom various vernacular traditions and ideas, especially, about music and meaning drawn from those traditions have been very, very important. One such is Harry Parch. Yeah, the remarkable Harry Parch. So tell me about Harry Parch. So Harry Parch is um, often referred to as a member of a, quote, school of American Mavericks and how, how you have a school of Mavericks, I don't know. I think there's a, there's a, a paradox in there. Um, but he's really, uh, unique. I mean, his particular achievement is singular in the history of Western music. And, and that sounds like a grandiose statement. It's actually true. It's, 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 uh, we can, we can prove it and we will. Um, but before we talk very, uh, very much more about Parch himself and his biography and his ideas, let's hear a little bit of his music. His music doesn't sound like anyone else's music, for one thing. And you're going to hear that right now. And we're going to go to a short excerpt. So we were just listening to a short excerpt of the music of Harry Parch, uh, recorded in 1969 at UCLA, a live performance of what most um, most of the people who study Harry Parch would consider his masterwork. It's called Delusion of the Fury. Uh, a great title, is, by the way. Yeah, Parch is, isn't it? I, I, I'm sorry to jump in, but one of the first things that attracted me to Parch, even before I met you and heard of your interest, Roger, was his incredible command of language 
and specifically in titles, sort of mythographic titles, but also, as we'll talk in the future, about the remarkable names he invented for the remarkable instruments he likewise invented. Yes, and, and more and more about that later. So this this work is a complete musical drama, dance, singing uh, kind of spectacle. It um, we'll talk about Parch's ideas about what he was doing, and and it may remind some of our listeners of, of Wagner's Gesamtkunstwerk. Um, it's similar in some ways. Um, but before we go much further, um, I think it would be great to hear from Parch himself. We have this great excerpt uh, of him explaining how he thought about his music. So we're going to go to that now. Here's Harry Parch. An inscription given to me by a Japanese calligrapher has hung on my studio walls in recent years. And it says, though homeless, you make a shrine wherever you are. At the moment, my shrine happens to be in Chicago. And if it is a shrine, it becomes one only through the musical instruments that I have around me. These are unusual in size, shape, and philosophic purpose. They are a musical necessity because I am essentially not an instrument builder, but a composer. I am a philosophic music man who long ago was seduced into musical carpentry. That's Harry Parch himself talking in a short documentary film that was made, I would say probably in the early 1960s, maybe Roger can give us a specific date, about his musical practice and the ways in which his musical practice is really part of a larger philosophical vision, not just about what music is or what its materials consist of, but really about what music does and the role that he imagined it playing in the lives of people for whom it was absolutely essential. Yes. Um, Parch's ideas about music um, bear some similarity to others who were working in the 20th century and even the late 19th century. Um, but what he believed about himself and what he said about himself uh, was he believed himself to be unique. He believed his, his um, motivations were unique. And he wrote, he actually compared to many 20th century composers, he wrote a tremendous amount about music. And in fact, is, I think, one of the great dissidents of 20th century music. If you read his critique of the, of the, the musical world in which he lived, uh, and which he was at once trying to become recognized uh, and a member of, um, he wanted to be successful, but also he was uh, critiquing that world from its very foundations. It wasn't for Parch, he wasn't simply um, championing uh, his own personal compositional style. He was comp uh, he was championing um, a complete reassessment, reevaluation, um, radical reevaluation of Western music uh, from its very fabric. Um, he is one of the great what is called now microtonal composers. He 
rejected the system that we use of the 12 tone equally tempered scale and now not to get deep in the weeds here with with intonation theory it's but it is essential to know that part of the sound of what you were hearing in that first clip is parch's uh division of the octave not by 12 notes 12 equal notes but by 43 unequal divisions um and it is some people, when they first hear it, they were disoriented by it. It doesn't have the same sort of tonal references that we're used to. Yeah, and for our, our musician listeners, people who are familiar with the tonal system, the, the system of 12 equal semitones to divide the octave, um, such folks, such listeners will, will grasp how fundamental, uh, I'd say even a confrontation, Parch is arguing. Um, even though, as Roger will tell us, Parch's reimagination of the intonation system has ancient roots, and it has roots in acoustical science as well as in the classical world of antiquity. But even if you're not a music person, what Parch is doing by, by rejecting the, the 12 uh, semitones of the equal tempered system, he's, he's fundamentally calling into question almost every aspect of music performance since the ancient period of how instruments are tuned, what notes are made available on a given instrument, whether it's even possible to play this microtonal music on the instruments of any Western classical tradition. And so a fairly fundamental, uh, my friend Tom would say, intervention in the ideas of how music works uh, e.g., that it is better to work in just intonation with this much more meticulous subdivision of the octave, leads Parch to really reimagine almost every aspect of his practice, and not just in terms of instruments, but every other aspect of practice as well. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And I said uh, a few minutes ago that Parch is singular in the history of of Western music. And, and here's, here are the reasons why. There's three reasons. One is he reconceived of how to construct a music. And then he wrote a book about it, which the first third of which is a, a for its time, a pretty good overview of intonation theory since the ancient world. Uh, and he makes an argument. I call, I refer to his book, a Genes Genesis of a Music. I refer to it as a manifesto because he tries to put himself in a historical context. He critiques, uh, his cho choices that were made in Western music up mainly around the, the, uh, the 16th century, 17th century, um, and deciding that or arguing that we went astray and he wants to correct it. And in that way, he's a revivalist. Uh, and also he has, he has something in common with the punks, uh, the, the, the punk movement in, in the mid seventies, um, in, in, in more ways than one, we'll get to, to that in a bit. Um, so he has a critique of, of Western music and he provides his alternative or his, uh, his correction. And the correction is his system. And then the third part of the book is he describes how he conceived of that system, how he implemented it in composition, and how he built 
over 30, built or adapted over 30 individual instruments in order to play that music. Yeah, and and I have to uh, interject here and say that one of the first things that hit me to Parch was that somewhere or other, at a crazily enough, at a yard sale or something like that, I ran across a copy of, used copy of Genesis of a Music. And I started reading it and it was like, was it, it's a very, very, very densely argued book. It is a manifesto and it is a monumental manifesto. Uh, Parch kind of sets out to re to imagine a remade world of music, but I have to say that in in addition to this this very dense prose that where you read a page and then you read a page again and read a page again and try to understand where he's going with this, it includes a number of plates of photograph photographic plates of both of his productions, mostly in black and white, but also of his instruments because I think the publisher, whoever that publisher was, realized that the instruments that Parch designed and built, friends, this is important. This is how fundamental, how protean he is. The instruments are just unbelievably beautiful physical objects. They are beautiful to look at. They have, they look like, they look like instruments that come from another world of experience, because in fact, that's both what they are for another world of musical experience, but they're also intended to create a different world of musical experience. Yes. And in a way, they're, um, they're sculptural because the appearance of the instrument and the way it would look in a performing space was as important to Parch as the sound of the instrument or, or the way in which it worked in his music. And he carried that, uh, that particular value uh, into performance. I mean, he's, he told his, his students, and keep in mind that if you invent a new system of music and then you have to create, you know, two and a half dozen instruments to play that music, you're going to end up teaching people to play the instruments you invented. And that was a big part of, of uh, Parch's life. And one of the, one of the values that he um, taught his students was if you're not embodying the music, if you're not paying attention to how you're moving and how you're looking, it doesn't matter if you play it perfectly. He said, if you look wrong, then that's as um, important as in any musical mistake that you would make in the performance. Yeah. And one of the things, this is one of the things that made me think of Parch when we were batting around ideas for this episode of the podcast is that conventionally Parch, like Henry Cowell, who we'll talk about in the second half of this episode, they're conventionally understood to be part of this sort of ultra-modernist mid to late 20th century movement of composers who are mavericks or outliers or uh, adversaries to the world of Western classical music. But there's key ways, certainly I know in, in the case of Cowell, and I think not insignificantly in the case of Parch, that they are imagining embodied musics, which are receptive to a very much wider range of sound materials and resources, and which seek to create spaces during performances, around performance, in the training of the musicians to make the performances, as you're saying, Roger, which connect very deeply with the ritualistic and the experiential in a way that, and, and send those messages, send messages of inclusivity and universality and, and those kinds of things. Because we should remember that every performance, including a performance by a string quartet or a symphony orchestra or Parch's ensemble, sends messages visually not just in terms of are we using 12 notes or 42 notes, 
but what are the messages we're sending? And I think that's what I responded to when I read Genesis of a Music, when I started finding Partridge's music on recordings long before YouTube, was this sense that this is a man who's interested in inventing or reinventing or maybe recalibrating a whole world of what music is and does. I, I think you're absolutely right about that. And uh, you may remember that a number of years ago, I was imparting on a, a research project on Parch in which I was um, interviewing his former students. And what I was looking for um, back then was evidence of Parch's thinking, which would be embodied in his pedagogy. And in, in other words, how he taught students to play his music on the instruments that he created. And I I still believe what I believed then, even though I didn't complete that project. And I believe that Parch's values were different than the values he saw in contemporary composition. Now, Cal was one of the people who, uh, with whom he was simpatico. They were friends. And Cal, act, uh, Cal actually did uh, some uh, presentation of, of Parch and his music in, in the Bay Area early on um, when he heard that, that Harry was uh, experimenting with intonation. And this was early on in, in Harry's career. Um, and I think Cal really helped him, gave you, you know, kind of gave him uh, a little feeling of legitimacy and encouraged him very early on his, in, in his, in his career. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about Cowell as, we'll talk about Cowell as an advocate on behalf of others, in addition to his own creativity as, as this remarkable voice advocating for not just experiment, but for freer thinking about music and about music and its role in culture. Yeah. Now more about Parch's values. I, would like to argue that Parch's values uh, are more like that of vernacular music. I think he literally believed that he could try, that he had a really good chance of reviving Greek drama, which in Greek drama, it's music too. It's music drama, right? Um, that's what he was going for, that kind of connection. And he used, you know, we, we just use the term embodiment. The term that, that Parch always used for his music and which he always stressed that's a really important value is corporeal. He thought that Western music had become um, so abstract and disembodied that it didn't, it, it, it had essentially gone astray. Um, he referred to virtuoso classical music uh, uh, performers as horses in the show ring. Um, there's a really famous and scathing critique he has in one of his books about modern concert culture. And you know, that was not something that very many people were critiquing at the time, because especially in the 20th century. Yeah, certainly not a composer who's trying to get ahead. Well, right. I mean, with all the fragmentation of style that happened early on in the 20th century, composers were competing to find an audience and eventually to find funding uh, and eventually to find performances. And, and so taking an, an, an antagonistic um, approach towards that system was not, was not what most people were, were uh, interested in, but Parch did it all his life. Yeah, it's he's a he was an incredibly iconoclastic person. He hewed his own path, um, and I know we have another piece of music to get to right now. But 
just before we ask you to set up that next that next piece in our playlist, Roger, can we talk a little bit about where Parch gets this from, like his early experience and what leads him to these kinds of sort of radical reimaginings? Yes. Parch was born in California, but uh, early on, his family moved to Arizona for his mother's health. Now, both of his parents had been missionaries in China uh, before Parch's birth. Uh, two different periods they were over there. Uh, they had intended to stay, but the Boxer Rebellion uh, was the reason that they finally left on their on their second mission and came back. Um, uh, they moved to Arizona for the dry uh, weather for Parch's mother's health. Um, his father worked, I think, in the customs um, uh, office. They were near the border with Mexico. One of Parch's earliest memories he talked about was not only music music making within the family because his parents were musical. They taught him to sing Chinese songs. They taught him to play the piano and the guitar and the mandolin and I think uh, the trumpet or the cornet. Um, but one of his early non-home-based music mer uh, memories was hearing a Yaqui Indian ritual. Uh, and the, the singing uh, made a big impression on him. Um, and he always referred to that as being something of a, of a formative uh, experience um, that, you know, later, I don't think it had a huge impact on what he used in his compositions, but the experience itself of that ritual was something that he aspired to in many of his works, this ritualistic aspect. And it's one of the reasons why I think his values were more like vernacular values in that he wanted to involve everyone in every way, movement, singing, performance, dance, uh, appearance, um, he wanted to unite them in an activity that was ritualistic, even though it wasn't religious, particularly. Yeah. And, and just for our listeners, it, it bears re repeating that so much of what Roger is describing about Parch's early experience, his family background, the musics that he first encountered, the music performance idioms that were first meaningful to him, where he was located in the world, really sets him apart from the... Eurocentric world of conventional classical concert performance. He he came from a different place. His family was of a different sort of background. His early musical environments were different. The modes of performance that touched him were radically different. And yet, as you as you're describing it, Roger, the it loops back to something you said earlier about him, Parch's manifesto, arguing that. The world of concert music had kind of taken a, a, a wrong turn around the era of the Renaissance. Uh, he's very interested in this integration, this corporeal phenomenon, the power of music as a kind of ritual performance, which of course is part of what the composers, the, the prototypical opera composers of the late Renaissance were trying to do as well. They had this idea that ancient Greek drama, music drama, had been this immersive, complete philosophical and spiritual as well as sounding and moving experience. And Monteverdi is trying to imagine what that is and recover it. And in his own way, Parch is offering the same critique and somewhat analogously to what Monteverdi and his successors did, inventing a different musical idiom 
to try to recover what he imagined those worlds to have been. And like um, Vincenzo Galilei, Parch was trying to find a way to set music, set speech to music. And for Parch, that led him into microtonality because we don't speak on musical tones, or if we do, it sounds stilted or it sounds like we're performing, right? He wanted to catch the subtleties of intonation in the human voice. That's what led him into microtonality. And he experimented with uh, 21, 23, 27 division, uh, um, unequal divisions of the octave, trying to get realistic speech pitch. And eventually it led him to 43. Uh, And then Having kind of broken the the tonal uh, bubble there, he went to other places that his uh, microtonality um, uh, led him. And I should probably say microtonal can mean lots of different systems. And we mentioned that uh, that Parch divided his octave by 43. The way he would talk about it is extended, just intonation. And the idea behind this is that you're trying to use ratios with the smallest numbers. That's the simplest way to say it. Rather than large numbers that give you equal, the same ratio between each adjacent step in the scale, um, smaller numbers that give you unequal steps between the notes in, the, in his scale. Which, before we have to go on, I know we have to get on to the next piece, it also bears repeating that this is also not an isolated kind of phenomenon because it's what very many... Renaissance unaccompanied vocal musics did, which is to tune the intervals to the particular tonal center employed for that piece, which is what every competent choral conductor of Renaissance music still does to this day. It's not about matching the semitones of the um, equal-tempered piano. It's about matching the just intervals that fit with the overtones, that fit with the ratios Roger has mentioned in the particular tonal center in which you're operating. This is, we could go far down the rabbit hole of intonation, and perhaps we will with a Renaissance scholar. Just one other point here for those who are moved to read Parch's book. He misunderstood one thing about the history of uh, 12-tone equal temperament. He believed that it became universal in the 18th century, and he pinned it on Bach. And this was a misunderstanding because for, and it wasn't his fault, but for many years, people conflated the idea of the well-tempered clavier with equal temperament because equal temperaments is one way to solve the challenge that Bach solved in his own unique way in the well-tempered clavier. Now, when you read that book, let Parch off the off the hook for that because uh, almost everyone had that same understanding. But when he's when he's uh, uh, harping on uh, on Bach, uh, let's let's let, let's uh, let cut him, him off some the slack. There. Yeah, let's cut him some slack. Uh, have you got something else to play for us? Yeah, this is um, well Harry Parch because he <laughs> had to invent instruments that would play his scale. It's very hard to get uh, a flute 
to play 43 notes to the octave because we don't have 43 fingers, right? So he was attracted he was attracted to string instruments because you can add strings and he was attracted very importantly to percussion. And um, Harry Parch was elected after his death uh, into the Hall of Fame of uh, Percussive Arts uh, as one of the great percussion composers. So we're going to hear um, kind of a mid uh, a mid period piece for Parch. Uh, I don't have the date off the top of my head, but it's called Daphne of the Dunes, and it's uh, a um, I think it was in the fifties, and it's a uh, percussion piece. So we're going to hear that now. That's a 1958 composition by Harry Parch called Daphne of the Dunes. We've been talking about Harry Parch, a remarkable protein composer who reimagined how music might operate in the world of performance and really in the world of human experience and psychology. Um, had it taken a different path around the year, around or before the year 1600. Um, remarkable music, which I first encountered actually through reading his manifesto, Genesis of a Music, and subsequently discovering first recordings and then much later video recordings of this remarkable world of instruments and a performance that Parch invented. Anything else you want our listeners to know about Parch before they go off to discover him for their own? Um, I'll just say that for many, many years, uh, Parch was so obscure that he didn't get a lot of notice. Um, you were more likely to hear an artist like Tom Waits or Frank Zappa mention Harry Parch than you were for any um, classical music uh, writers or performers to mention. And of course, there, you know, a good reason for that is his music is very difficult. It's you, you have to come to Parch on his terms. You have to learn to play his instruments. You ha have to find his instruments. Or now there two uh, organizations have co made copies of his instruments so his music can be played, one in California and one in Germany. Um, but he, he, he not only was he a difficult person and irascible in many ways, but his music is thorny and difficult and it's hard to approach. Uh, so that raised the bar quite high. But now there is uh, something of a reassessment um, and an appreciation, uh, a gr I should say, a growing appreciation for his music and an interest in what he's doing. And his influence can actually be heard um, in, in various places, like I anyone who's heard uh, a film score um, recently that uses some detuning. Um, is hearing uh, uh, in some way the, the legacy of Harry Parch. Um, we're going to finish with another of his tracks. This is another excerpt of the first piece that we heard, um, Delusion of the Fury. This is a section called 
chorus of shadows and it begins with his modified um, pump organ, a reed organ that he modified and he called the chrome melodeon. Um, 44 one of, the, keys. One, of the gr one of the great instrument names ever, yes. the chrome melodeon. It, you know, it's a, it's a pump organ, a portable pump organ like missionaries might have used. Um, in fact, I would imagine they probably had one in their home. It has 44 keys, you know, which in a normal system is several octaves. Um, but on his system is exactly one octave. Uh, and so you'll hear that instrument in the opening. So here's Harry Parch. There are interesting parallels and, of course, distinctions between the lives of every musician and creative artist, but there are some particular resonances between Parch and the composer we're going to talk about in the second half of the program. Yeah, and the, when we were talking about this episode, I knew that Roger had great interest in the music of Harry Parch and had really made me think about Parch's music in a much richer way, made, sent me back to Genesis of a Music and sent me back to the recordings and performances and video recordings we can now access relatively easily it reminded me how much I had loved Parch's music and just the imagination of his world when I first encountered it. Uh, it also made me think for my portion of today's episode about the American composer Henry Cowell, who was born in 1897, so he's roughly a contemporary of Parch. And there are some parallels, as Roger was saying, there are, of course, distinctions between the lives of these two creative artists. But there are also some interesting parallels that I think help situate them, maybe not as part of a school of mavericks, but I think certainly situate them as people who looked at the inherited traditions of Western classical music and the aesthetics of Western classical music and the presumptions about what's beautiful and the presumptions about what's high and low art and the presumptions about what music is and does, I think it connects them. Cowell, like Parch, grew up in a, a sort of archetypally West Coast kind of world. He was born in Menlo Park in California, not far from Stanford University. And uh, his father was an Irish immigrant and a devotee of Irish traditional music. And they had relocated to California. Um, he was raised by his um, his mother in what was essentially in pre-World War I Northern California, what was essentially an artist bohemian commune. It was kind of group living, I suspect, free love, highly creative, highly experimental world, not at all the world of academic music composition or music training. And so like Parch, he came from people who were interesting people with a very wide and diverse biographical experience. Like Parch, he grew up in a, a non-traditional kind of setting, not a Victorian setting at all, but really a prototypical bohemian setting. Parch's parents had been missionaries. Cowell's parents were artists and musicians. And he was a bit of a child prodigy. He, he was schooled at home uh, by his mother, but he began composing music uh, sound by his mid-teens. And 
it's probably some of his earliest works that are most widely known. There's certainly, there's one composition that of, of Cowell's that often is taken as representative of all of his music experiments and uh, generations of music undergraduate students have been terrified by this piece, which I'll talk about in just a second. But uh, I want to mention a couple of others that actually predate the, the notorious one. Um, Parch, excuse me, I'm making a Freudian slip there. Parch and Cowell grew up with this remarkable freedom of a sense, remarkably free of a sense of obligation to the classical tradition. And so Cowell very early on begins experimenting with the fundamental definitions of what music sound is. His music is almost always programmatic. It almost always is about something or it depicts something or it paints a picture, tells a story. But he's willing to make music sound and he's willing to take musical inspirations from almost anywhere. For example, this particular um, early work from the mid-teens, which is a work for keyboard, Cowell himself said had been inspired by his experience when he he injured his leg or something like that. And he was coming back from the doctor and he was angry as a teenager, precocious teenager. He was angry at this doctor who told him that he was going to have trouble walking for the rest of his life. And so he was on crutches walking back to his home, wherever it was. And he says somewhere in his writings, he says, and this repetitive rhythm began, began to appear in my mind. And by the time I got home, I had I, I had this piece for the piano in my head and and I just went to the piano and I wrote it down and he called it anger dance. So that's a, an early composition by the California composer, Henry Cowell, uh, work for the piano, but not using the piano in any way like uh, an instrument from the European 19th century tradition, a composition mostly about rhythm, not too dissimilar to some of the uh, uh, perpetual motion works that were being experimented by people like um, Scriabin and Prokofiev and Bartok, roughly the same period. But Cowell was doing this in a relatively isolated way, a relatively sui generis way, a way he invented himself. Um, I mentioned earlier before that, that there is a, another work, another early work also for the piano by Cowell, which has uh, terrified generations of conservatory undergraduate music students. And Roger, because I know that you know the piece and have heard it, and because I know that you're a, uh, something of a of a of an expert on Irish folklore and the Irish language, um, the piece is called the Banshee. So what's in, in Irish folklore? Remember, Cowell's father was an Irish immigrant. In in Irish folklore, what is the banshee? What's that literally mean? Well, it's 
it's a contraction of two words in the Irish language. The first one is ban, B-E-A-N, but pronounced ban, which means woman. Um, it can also mean wife. Um, and she, S-I with an accent on the, uh, on the I, which means fairy. And so it's the fairy woman. And in Irish folklore, um, if you hear the cry of the banshee, that means somebody's going to die. It's like the call of an owl in uh, Native American tradition, in some Native American traditions. It's, um, and it's, it's considered to be terrifying. I mean, the people who hear it are terrified. Yeah. Both the people in the in the Irish countryside who heard the banshee yeah. wailing and some music undergraduates who hear this piece for the first time. Now, the reason the piece has this particular kind of uh, uh, timbre and affect is because it's played what we now call inside the piano. In other words, the piano, which is an instrument whose conventional technique has you striking hammers, striking keys, which in turn strike hammers, this to sound the 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 very high tension strings of this 88 key instrument. But what Cowell has the asked the player to do is to hold down different sets of keys and then reach in with one hand and then reach inside the piano with the other hand and activate different strings from inside. So it's it's a very precise score, graphic score, visually represents exactly what you need to do. We'll put it in our show notes and it'll be on the website. But it's a quite unearthly sound, and it's a sort of rising and falling waves of spooky sound, a sound which, like that of uh, Parches, shows up in more by reference in later film scores and whatnot, people referencing works like this. And I don't think that it was Cowell's desire to create abrasive music or music that was distasteful to listen to. I think Cowell felt very free about what could be what sounds could be included in understanding what music was. And additionally, maybe because of his background, he didn't have this same, I would think, it's for some people, burdensome sense of obligation that he had to somehow live up to the European tradition. He's kind of approaching this from an entirely different way. So there are a whole series of pieces like this. Most of them have... Um, various kinds of programmatic titles. Many of them involve alternate, what we call alternate te techniques on the piano. The Tides of Manana, and there's a famous one called the Aeolian Harp, which uses a similar technique, but imagines those harps that were actually set up to by the ancient Greeks on hilltops to catch the wind, and it was the wind moving past the strings that sounded them. So he's often working out of folklore and, and programmatic thinking, but he's thinking very freely about what musical materials can consist of. The result of that is that from about 1920 onward, he's he's creating a lot of music and he's also has remarkable impact on other people, including people who are better, other composers who are better known than he. Very famously, Cowell is one of the first people to publish music in which rather than playing vertical structures on the piano, like triadic vertical sonorities or quartal harmonies or that kind of thing. He's playing the keys of the piano with his fist or his forearm or his flattened fingers and or even with a with a, a wooden board that's been cut to accommodate certain keys. And he does that because he can get combinations of pitches that are not available with the 10 fingers. And we call them now we call them tone clusters. And and anyone who ever put up a cat video 
of a cat walking across the keyboard of a of a piano and a TikTok video is that those are tone clusters. But at the time that Kawa began publishing these works, particularly in the medium of the journal that he himself founded called uh, New Music or New uh, New Musical Resources, which was an immensely influential journal because it published not just his own works, but the works of a number of other highly experimental composers. It was a journal. It was really about making experimental music available to others. And, you know, power of the, the power of print, those, those journal issues went a lot of places, so much so that a little later on, um, a, a copy of New Musical Resources fell into the hands of Bella Bartok. And Bartok wrote to the younger composer, uh, Henry Cowell on the West Coast and said, Dear Mr. Cowell, I am absolutely astonished and uh, galvanized by these this technique you have invented called tone clusters. May I have your permission to employ the technique? Which says wonderful things not only about uh, Cowell's influence, but also about what a gentleman Bella Bartok was, because Mozart would have just stolen them, right? But it's it's a it's a it's an evidence of of like parts of Cowell's influence reaching beyond even those who heard his own music. He's a remarkable composer and a kind of interesting man. Didn't Charles Ives also borrow the tone cluster idea for his Concord Sonata? Ives, it, I, it's likely that Ives was already working with those kinds of things before he heard Cowell's music. Because Ives was born in 1874, so he's 20, 22 years older than Cowell. Now, there is a, there is a close and beautiful very complicated, but really very beautiful relationship between the older Charles Ives and the younger Henry Cowell, because Cowell was out in the world. And Cowell, to his great credit, I think really admirably, conceived it to be part of his job to make the music, to make music that he admired by other composers more widely available. And that's really why he founded New Musical Resources, was to, to, to advocate, to be an advocate for these, for these other composers, including the older Charles Ives. Later on, uh, Cowell's wife, Sidney Robertson Cowell, actually uh, co-wrote with him the first informal biography of Charles Ives. And again, it's a kind of advocacy. It's a really wonderful thing. Cowell himself uh, continued to be very active as a teacher of composition, as well as a publisher, as well as a composer of music. Um, he had uh, a kind of complicated experience later on because of his own personal life and stances then that were then common about personal behavior. Cowell actually went to prison um, on what was then called a morals charge because he was arrested for um, a same-sex relationship and uh, declined to um, and, and insisted upon pleading guilty. Um, he actually went to jail, continued to be active in jail. He was eventually he was eventually released from jail. As a result of the, um, in the wake of the really restrictive laws governing same-sex love in that period, but right through that period, he continued to write, he continued to compose, he continued to advocate for others, and uh, is really a kind of admirable man. He was in San Quentin for four years. I'm just checking now, and while he was there, he quote taught fellow inmates, directed the prison band, and produced around sixty compositions, which is, uh, I mean. We, we don't like to think about times when good people went to jail for who they love, but it happened to Cowell. Mm -hmm. Remarkably productive in that environment. Yeah. Yeah. 
I didn't know that. Yeah, there's a funny thing about a number of these composers, um, Cowell among them, who in the 1920s and 30s were quite progressive musically, and a number of whom were quite progressive uh, politically as well. The 1930s was a very progressive period in American cultural history. It was actually a, a bit of a source of tension between Ives and some of these younger composers, because Ives was, a, was older, and he was a very straight-laced Victorian. He was... Um, his politics were not uh, intolerant, but he was of an older generation. And one of the beautiful things I think about Ives is that Ives continued to believe in and support these younger composers, even though he differed with them about issues of personal behavior or about politics. Um, and in fact, uh, later on in the 1950s, Cowell really had to restrain himself a great deal because in the 1950s with the backlash of the House Un-American Affairs Committee, a whole bunch of people who had been kind of progressive politically in the 1930s when you could, the Communist Party of the USA ran a candidate for president in the 1930s. But by the 1950s, those same 20 or 25-year-old contacts were really um, coming back to bite people in the, in the depths of the McCarthy era. But he continued to write a great deal of music. He wrote music that was based upon the kind of chance operations that John Cage employed, what we call aleatoric music, um, music which I think was intended to give players more freedom to make choices rather than locking them into very specific uh, kinds of practices. He, he continued to be productive and inventive. Isn't there a type of aleatoric procedure uh, from... Um, the Banshee doesn't he give the the performer a degree of agency that was kind of unusual in that in that time period? Well, he does, and and there's a and most notably because there's no way to note to notate. There had been no ways to notate some of these techniques. He had to invent ways of notating these techniques. And when you look at the image of the Banshee, which is two pages and it's mostly drawings of squiggles and dots and lines on the five line staff, and what it shows you is. Hold down these keys, and with your other hand, sweep from this string to this string inside the piano. And there's a degree of um, chance there, right? Just because nobody can do it the same way twice. So it's almost, it's inadvertent, but it's really, it's, I, I would go deeper, and it's more what you're, what you're talking about, where um, he's allowing performers to make their own choices and treating those individualized choices as valid realizations of the piece. He used a technique that he called elastic form, and this is going to really ring a bell also for a lot of undergraduate musicians, as well as for you, maybe, Roger, which is that he allows performers in certain pieces, he calls elastic pieces, to decide how many times to repeat a section. He gives you a section of music and says, everybody in the ensemble can play, has to play this piece of music, this section, but you can all choose individually in any given performance who repeats how many times. And that is a very, very profound influence on the people who probably are the the richest uh, took the richest inheritance from Henry Cowell and those of the prototypical composers we refer to as minimalists, particularly Terry Riley and Lamont Young, both of them West Coast based composers again. And his time um, for Harry Parch, his time in the West Coast uh, was very important. Uh, not only did he meet Henry Cowell, but he had the experience while he lived there for a few months or maybe even a year of going to Chinese opera in San Francisco had a huge impact on him. 
we don't have time to cover that, but that's another connection, uh, Bay Area connection uh, that Cowell uh, inadvertently facilitated for Parch. Now, um, have we got another piece from Cowell that you want to play? Yeah, thank you for giving me that opportunity to do that, because just as you were saying about Cowell continuing to discover and to facilitate new discoveries and new connections, it's the kind of thing we do throughout this podcast, right? The connections between humans and music and experience. There's another part of Cowell, which is equally important and equally important in terms of his advocacy as well as his own composition, which is his deep, deep, deep connection with uh, various forms of North American vernacular musics and folk musics. Um, there's a whole series of works that Cowell writes for a number of different instrumental combinations for solo instruments and for various various combinations, which he calls the hymns and fuguing tunes. And he calls he, he uses the the verb fuguing and he spells it f-u-g-i-n-g, which is a clue because that spelling is a spelling that was really only used by the first New England school of composers in the 18th century, people like uh, Daniel Reed and William Billings, who were the first sort of school of homegrown, self-taught American composers, not particularly tied to the European tradition. And so they're beautiful pieces. They're relatively conventional. I've got one for you right now. And uh, the takeaway here would be that uh, a phrase that I've taken from Henry Cowell, which I've really wanted to live by for my entire adult musical career. It's the first slogan that we ever used for the, for the Vernacular Music Center, because Henry Cowell said, I want to live in the whole world of music. And this is Henry Cowell doing just that with the hymns and fuguing tunes. Voices from the Vernacular Music Center is hosted by Roger Landis and Chris Smith and produced with funding from the Talkington College of Visual and Performing Arts. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check the show notes for images, video and audio playlists, guest bios, and our links to online streaming and reference services. And please remember to like, share, and leave reviews, because that's how more listeners hear about us. We tweet at Woke Academic and VMC Voices. Our post-production engineer is Gavin Stocker, and our VVMC administrative coordinator is Heather Belts. Check out her Possibly Haunted podcast. You can find our website at vernacularmusiccenter.org slash podcast. Special thanks, as always, to our podcast consultant, Seedpod Productions, at seedpodmedia.com. See you next time. <laughs>